Good morning. It's good to see you guys. Thank you for being here today. Before we get started, I want to mention uh, a transition that's coming up next week. Uh, so today is August the 8th. You probably know that. A week from today is the 15th. And uh, next week will be what we call Transition Sunday uh, or Promotion Sunday. So uh, all of our kids who are now back in their kids' classes will be promoting into the next grade in preparation for school to start back a couple of days later. And I just want to make sure you guys are aware of that. We've had a handout for you if you're a parent of a kid who participates in our classes for a couple of weeks, but I want to make you aware. And then specifically, uh, anybody who has been in fifth grade up through this summer and is going to be graduating into the sixth grade uh, will join the student ministry, which means they'll be staying in here with us. Uh, so you can pray for them. You can bring them a coloring page from home if you think that would benefit them. Uh, if you think 40 minutes of me is a little different pace, uh, maybe than what they're used to in a kid's class, you are right about that. Um, and I want to mention, too, if you are a parent of a new sixth grader, especially if you don't have uh, any older kids and you're just now beginning to navigate preteen life for the first time, our student minister, Josh Mangum, would be a great resource to you. And I would recommend that you take a minute today uh, when we're done this morning and just touch base with him. Um, he always has a student ministry table in the back of the room. He's got some resources there for you as well as some merchandise, things like that, that uh, your student might enjoy having. Uh, so connect with Josh, and while I'm mentioning Josh, I want to say thank you to him as well uh, for his excellent message last week. I can tell you from experience, it's really challenging to be given a text in the middle of a series that you did not design, nor do you have a lot of say over, and be given pretty strict boundaries that you have to stay within while you're preaching. And Josh has been willing to do that a couple of times in this series through Exodus. It's been a great blessing to me to not have to be in the pulpit every single week. Last week I had the opportunity to serve in a kid's class, which is a unique joy that I get to have as a part of this church. Um, but I just thought Josh did a great job. He really handled the text well, and he's been a willing part of our preaching team at True North. So if you were here last week and you appreciated his message, I can tell you that the most helpful thing you could do for him is give him a specific thing that you noticed that was really, really helpful as he works hard to get better at his communicating. Um, the text that Josh had us in last week was the first three quarters of chapter 10 of the book of Exodus. The eighth plague, locusts that God sent from uh, west, northwestern Africa into Egypt to destroy the crops of Egypt, the remaining crops after the hail, which was the seventh plague, and to attack the idol, the idolatry of the hearts of the Egyptians in the form of their own order, their own control over their life. This morning, we're going to pick up where we left off. So we'll start reading in Exodus chapter 10, beginning in verse 21. We'll read through the end of the chapter, which is only uh, nine verses today. So if you have a copy of God's Word, if you'd head that way, if you're using an Exodus Scripture journal, we'll be uh, close to the middle of the page on page 48. That helps you orient yourself. And if you're new to True North, I know a number of you, this is your first time this morning, or you've just jumped in with us in the last four to six weeks. Uh, we like to use these. We typically preach um, expositional, verse-by-verse uh, exegetical series, and so we like to give you guys a scripture journal that consists of the scripture as well as a blank page uh, to take notes on on every page. If you want one of these and you don't have one, I'm pretty sure every online retailer in the world has been out of them, but for whatever reason, we just got a bunch of back order copies shipped. So we have some today that we can give you. We would love to give you one of these for free if you need one. So when we're done this morning at the Connect table in the back of the room, you can grab a scripture journal if you prefer to work through this with us in that way. We will be in the book of Exodus for a good while yet longer, and it might benefit you to have one. If you pick one up, a caveat for you, please write your name in it and your phone number or an email address because you're going to lose it. And when we find it, we're going to have to try to do some kind of forensic analysis of your handwriting and figure out who you are, and it doesn't work very well. So just give us an indicator in the book. We'll make sure it gets back to you. Let's start reading in verse 21 of chapter 10. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. 
So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. In other words, they just sat in their beds, in their chairs, in their houses. But all of the people of Israel had light where they lived. In August of 1914, a man named Ernest Shackleton took a crew of British sailors aboard his ship, the Endurance, and they set sail from London with one objective. Uh, They were headed for the South Pole. Now, a few years earlier, if you follow kind of polar exploration, which seems like it becomes a lot of men's hobby when they move to Alaska, they want to figure out how people lived up here before there was electricity, but the South Pole exploration had already happened. A man had arrived at the South Pole a number of years earlier, and so Shackleton's objective was to get a boat down to what we might refer to as the northern coast of Antarctica. It's really hard to quantify that down at one of the poles, but basically a straight shot down through the Atlantic Ocean along the coast between Africa and Latin America to Antarctica. Then he was going to get off of his boat and walk all the way across Antarctica to the pole, past the pole to the other side, and then get back on his boat and go home. And that was it. He wasn't looking for an animal. There was no treasure to be found. His goal was just to do it and have enough people with him that he could go back to London and say, I did it. And everybody would be like, Okay, cool. So on their way, on the journey, they're five months into this process, Ernest and his crew. And as they arrive close to, again, I don't know how familiar you are with the geography of Antarctica, but there's a couple of islands. There's the South Georgia Island. There's what's called Elephant Island that kind of run on a a volcanic chain across from Antarctica up toward the southern tip of Latin America. And as they're traveling there, in about May, the ice pack begins to collect around the sides of their boat. Because they're just in an old wooden ship. Like, this is, this is not an era of steam engines. So they arrive there, their ship gets stuck, and they can't, they can't move on. They're, that's all they can do. They're trapped, basically. They're trapped for so long that they are not able to leave the ice pack. They never make the expedition itself. They don't actually make land on Antarctica. They're trapped there long enough that eventually they have to get off of their boat. They have to try to burn the wooden parts of their boat to survive on the ice pack through the southern winter. And then eventually, when the ice pack begins to break up in July, this started back in the very beginning of May, so May, June, all of July, 90 days, they've been just trying to live off of whatever animals they can catch and the shrapnel scraps of their boat. They save their lifeboats, they get into their lifeboats, they sail back to the southern tip of Latin America, catch another boat, and go back to London. One of the finest biographies of this journey is by a guy named Alfred Lansing. It was written in the 1950s or 60s. And Lansing describes the journey that Shackleton went on. He calls it an amazing success, though my perspective is a little different because if you left to do one thing and you didn't do it, I'm not sure that that equates success, but he seems to think it's a, it's a big deal. According to Alfred Lansing's biography of Shackleton, the very worst part of all of this is what they call the polar night. For these men, darkness fell in early May of 1915, and they did not see the sun again until the end of July. This is a quote from his biography of Ernest Shackleton. Alfred Lansing wrote this. He said, in all the world... There is no desolation more complete than the polar night. It is a return to the ice age. No warmth, no life, no movement. Only those who have experienced it can fully appreciate what it means to be without the sun day after day and week after week. Few men accustomed to it can fight off its effects altogether, and it has driven some men mad. So the next time your family members in the lower 48 ask you how the winter is in Alaska, you could just send them that quote, right? Just let them know, right? I read that and I go, yeah, that's like going to cars to get groceries in January. It feels about like that. So 
Lansing's description of the polar night helps us get a grasp on the kind of darkness that the people of Egypt experienced. Yes, it was only for three days, and these men on this journey experienced darkness for 90, but this kind of darkness is a wholesale assault on the human person. It's not just an attack on your physical faculties. It's not just an attack on your mind. It's certainly not only an attack on your spirit. It is wholesale. If we consider the previous plagues, like blood in the Nile riverbanks or frogs in your bed, gnats and flies, these things are certainly annoying, frustrating. They even hold religious significance for the people of Egypt. But essentially what they are is physical barriers to you living your life the way that you want to. They are annoyances. They are inconveniences. They may stop or delay or prevent you from doing a thing that you want, but they don't ultimately attack your person. Moving on from there, the next set of plagues, pestilence and disease, even hail, these things are mentally defeating to a person because they drain away our intellectual fail-safes, the places where our minds go when our present is not good. And we begin to think, well, but things will get better. There's always hope in this or that. Things like the economy or our future experience of physical pleasure, we tell ourselves, I'll feel better someday. Or even our sense of order or control, the things that make our lives predictable. These are the things that God has gone after mentally. But the darkness, the darkness is a spiritually heavy plague. And more than that, it isolates a person so that they can't run away from their own self, their own inner person, the heart of themselves. When we find ourselves in the darkness like this, we have to deal with our own broken minds. The darkness leaves us to sit in our physical realities as well. It doesn't allow some kind of vapid optimism to relieve the stress or the strain that we feel. Material comforts cannot distract us from our own self-awareness of our own misery. It's wholesale. It's body, mind, and spirit. Ernest Shackleton watched some of the members of his crew slowly lose their minds across a period of 90 days in the darkness of the South Pole. The pharaoh of Egypt has a similar experience from within his palace, surrounded by every pleasure that a person could imagine. More powerful than anybody before him in human history and still totally helpless to do anything about the inky blackness that Yahweh has poured out onto the land of Egypt. And just a sidebar here, if you can imagine being part of the people of Israel, thinking through verse 23, that the land of Goshen is this weird, small, isolated area that still has sunlight, the sun is still coming up and going down every day. This is not a global or cosmological phenomenon in which the sun is being held in one position. The natural cycle of things still exists in Goshen. God has sent a barrier. He has sent something physical to blot out and black out all of the light. For three days, 72 hours, people just sit, the Bible says. They don't get up from their place. That means they don't leave. They're not eating. They're not going to the bathroom. This is Hebrew language for the daily tasks of life, day in and day out. It all stops, totally frozen. Now, many of you may have heard before the idea, it's an often attributed quote, um, that darkness is just the absence of light. Maybe you've heard that before. Um, This has been attributed to many people. I try to do my homework before I communicate with you guys, and I couldn't really find the actual person who said this first. It's been attributed to a whole spectrum of people, from the late modern spiritualist Marianne Williamson, a lady who appears on Oprah all the time, all the way back to Albert Einstein has been given credit for this quote. Um, But the idea is that darkness itself is somehow impotent, that it's weak, that really all we have to do is find a way to flip the light switch on in our culture or in our society or even in our own psyche and that things will instantly be better for us. And I've seen the principle behind this quote influence really bad practices among Jesus' followers. 
Specifically, when we interact sometimes with those who are in mourning, especially if we ourselves have never actually survived significant loss, in which well-meaning platitudes are often handed out at funerals or grave sites, while the Apostle Paul's instruction in Romans 12 to actually mourn with those who mourn goes totally ignored. We tend to just sort of hand out platitudes and out-of-context scriptures. But the worst version of this misunderstanding of darkness is when a believer or someone near to a believer experiences true depression. We can understand when well-meaning friends of the family offer us Bible verses out of context when we've recently experienced loss, right? At a funeral, that's just par for the course. It's part of the endurance of losing somebody is having to try to navigate all of the people around you who clumsily want to help so badly and, and be a benefit to you and represent Jesus in your life. In that case, the damage is typically minimal if it happens at all, right? We can sort of go, I know you meant better than you actually came across But when a follower of Jesus feels the need to invade the mental or spiritual darkness of another person in the interest of just flipping the lights back on, if we simplify or dismiss the darkness that a person may carry with them every hour of the day in a way where we end up communicating, whether we mean to or not, just do something about it. Just try harder. Just try this thing you haven't tried yet. Just do this thing you haven't done yet. What we may do is significant damage, and what Exodus 10 demonstrates to me is that darkness is not just the absence of light. Darkness can show up in a way that you can feel. This darkness in these verses is not the product of the loss of light. It is the arrival of something significant in the lives of the people of Egypt. As it is described in Exodus 10 physically, so too darkness can arrive in the life of a person spiritually and mentally. The Hebrew word that's translated as felt, in, if you're reading the ESV like I am in verse 21, when the Bible says that uh, God tells Moses there will be a darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. That word felt, it's representing the concept, the idea of groping, grasping hands, reaching for something, feeling it. It's tangible. This word is used vividly in the Genesis account of Jacob when Jacob fools his father Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing that Esau deserved. If you're unfamiliar with that story, Isaac is one of the men who we refer to as the patriarchs, the kind of original family of God on earth that God chose and called out and transformed in order to try to reach and transform the world. And as Isaac grew old, he lost his eyesight. He was unable to identify his two sons. One of them was very hairy, the Bible tells us, so hairy that that was his nickname. He was ruddy and red. And then the other son was very, um, just, I've described him before as more of an inside-oriented person, just a very, like, uh, quiet and in the background and maybe more frail, fragile, not a hard worker. And his skin was very uh, smooth to the touch. And so the son Jacob, the smooth-skinned, sneaky son Jacob, decides to scheme together with his mother to deceive his father in order to receive a blessing that he never should have had. And in that story, blind Isaac reaches out to touch the arms of the son he thinks is Esau, and instead of feeling the hairy arms of his son, he feels Jacob's arms wrapped in goatskin, and it fools him. So Esau was a hairy brother if goatskin feels like what he felt like in the dark. But that concept of running his hands through the individual fibers of that goatskin, feeling it, testing it, rubbing it, grasping it, this darkness is that tangible in the life of these Egyptian people. It's not just night sky for three days. It's not just that they couldn't flip the lights on because they didn't have electricity. This thing is sitting on them heavy. It is filling the space between them. It is inhabiting the land. This type of darkness, when it manifests in our lives, spiritually or mentally, is more than just a bad day. 
It is not a mood, nor does it signify spiritual immaturity. For those of you who have been to that depth within yourself or who may find yourself even going there on a regular basis, even against your will, I want you to hear me say the Bible understands what many of the people in your life may not. That depression is real, that it can be consuming, and it must be taken seriously. This kind of darkness sits heavy on the soul and the mind, and it can't just be dismissed with a cup of coffee and ten minutes of Bible reading in the morning. If you're living under that shadow, it's important that you hear somebody in a church somewhere tell you, we see you. God sees you. God has a category for your experience. He understands these things. In the same way that two plagues ago, Yahweh told the Pharaoh that the product of these plagues was supposed to be transformation in the inner man of Pharaoh. The heart is the word the ESV uses. So too, God is near to you. Jesus is near to you as you suffer through this depression. He is near to your inner person. He connects with that. He understands what you're dealing with. And just a caution for those of us who've lived outside of that kind of darkness, if we've been so blessed to have never dipped our toe into these dark waters, even if we are very close to someone who lives underneath this kind of shadow, we need to be careful about how we even express our intentions to help. Yes, Jesus sets people free from whatever they have been captured by. That's the work he does in us. He came to set captives free, to make captive people free, to give life where there's only been death. Absolutely. But when darkness like this has grown into a person, the precision and the patience required to separate the bramble of depression from the living soul of the person who has been its host for so long, this means we must be extremely careful. Very, very careful that we don't destroy the person engulfed in the darkness as we try to go to war with the darkness itself. To the point that I would not expect any of us to be of any real use to someone living in the murk of depression until we've been with Jesus in prayer. Until we ourselves have confessed our own weakness, begging God for the humility to navigate something this nuanced and challenging in the life of another. Having repented of the times and places where we've accidentally participated in the dismissal of another person's dark reality. And we must also be steeped in the scriptures. For those of you who have had your inner darkness dismissed or belittled or ignored, the ninth plague gives the rest of us good reason to repent and to take you seriously. So darkness falls in Egypt, and the people are paralyzed. They just sit in their rooms. They're unable to pierce this darkness, living in their own heads with their own worst thoughts swirling. If the previous plagues were hard for the Egyptians, this one is consuming. And we get Pharaoh's reaction in verse 24. Let's keep reading. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said to him, Go, leave, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. The specific language Pharaoh uses about little ones being allowed to leave is a response to the way that through the last three or four plagues, every time Pharaoh is broken by a plague, he offers God just a little bit more of what God has asked for completely. God has said, let all my people go, send all of their flocks, let them go and worship me. And Pharaoh is still bargaining. He's still negotiating with God. He says, great, all the people can go now. The darkness has been so bad, we don't want any more of this. But the animals have to stay behind. Moses said to him, this is verse 25, you must also let us have sacrifices. You must let us have burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to Yahweh who is our God. So our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. 
Just a little bit of foreshadowing here that Moses is expecting to get something from Yahweh once the people finally make their way into the wilderness. I don't know that he has a clear concept of the Ten Commandments and the the fullness of the Mosaic Law as well as the feast system and the tabernacle, but he can sense that they need to take everything with them because this is a paradigm shift in the life of these people. They are being taken away from their surrogate mother, Egypt, who has abused and misused them and being given over to their true father who will lead them and cultivate them and turn them into the nation that he promised Abraham years and years ago. Verse 27, this is Pharaoh's response. But Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go again. God gives Pharaoh what he wants. Resolute inner strength to, to have a stiff neck and resist the God of Israel. That's all Pharaoh wants in the world is the pride to maintain his position, to defend himself and to refuse to bend his knee to Yahweh. So God gives it to him. Pharaoh said to Moses, you can read this as if Pharaoh is screaming. He's very angry at this point. Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses says, as you say, I will not see your face again. So Pharaoh is obviously furious. He's not just frustrated like he has been previously. He's losing his fight with Yahweh. Something happened when the darkness fell that changed things for Pharaoh. It struck a nerve for him. So in order to understand that, we need to zoom out a little bit and ask ourselves, as we have every week, what's going on here spiritually? The book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 33 tells us that when God set his people free from Egypt by way of the plagues, he was making war on the gods of Egypt. So what god could Pharaoh be going after? Well, in order to navigate that, we need to understand that the worship of the sun, S-U-N, the sun in the sky, was the pinnacle of religious practice in Egypt. If you were only going to make it to one temple, you would go to the sun temple of Amun-Re. Amun-Re being the god who was believed to inhabit the sun disk and to carry it across the sky every day, reassuring his people that there would be renewal and resurrection and new life, that the darkness would not last, but that he would bring light for them. Amun-Re was believed within the Egyptian pantheon to have formed the earth, to have hung the sun and the moon, and to have populated the planet with plants and animals. Does that sound like our God a little bit? Amun-Re speaks of himself in one ancient Egyptian epic. He says this. He calls himself the great God who came into being of himself, he who created his names, he who has no opponent among the gods. You think Yahweh didn't take a little bit of offense at that? Okay, the Pharaoh himself, as an Egyptian, is also a sun worshiper. But more than any other Egyptian, the Pharaoh's existence, his identity, his understanding of his own self is derived from Amun-Re because the Pharaoh is believed to derive his own divinity, to be the incarnate son of Amun-Re. Does this sound a little bit like any other faith system in the world that you've ever encountered before? That there is a God in the heavens who created all things, who is considered supreme and high and lifted up and that he lovingly incarnated into the flesh so that his people could know him and be near to him and worship him. The primary difference and the most important one between the system of Christianity in which God the Father sent God the Son to the earth as Jesus and the system the Egyptians had in which Amun-Re incarnated a new Pharaoh every 10 or 15 years is that Amun-Re's incarnate son, Pharaoh, was intended to subvert and oppress the people. It was believed that without his good and right rule, the people would live in chaos, that they needed to be beaten down, attacked, and conquered because of the darkness in them. Yet the way of Jesus is so very different from that. 
that Jesus would choose to be near to people, people who would end up literally stabbing him in the back, killing him because of their anger with the way that he presented to them the way of eternal and abundant life. There's a dichotomy happening here. Even though Jesus has not arrived on the scene in the second book of the Bible, God's plan is already in motion. And so this cheap version of incarnation and son being like father, this is an abomination to our God. If I haven't convinced you yet that Pharaoh is kind of a big deal in Egypt, let me just read to you the prayer to Pharaoh that was prayed by school children every morning before they would begin their classes. You can think of this as sort of the ancient Egyptian Pledge of Allegiance. The children would recite together, worship Pharaoh, living forever within your bodies, that there's some element of the divine Pharaoh that inhabits your own flesh. We're asking our eight-year-olds to recite this in ancient Egypt. They would say, he is Re, Amun-Re, he is the God, by whose beams one sees, he is one who illuminates the two lands even more than the sun disk, the two lands being the upper and lower kingdoms of Egypt, the known world at that time. You would say that in the morning, I guess, and then you would sit down and do social studies or whatever. I don't know. But this was a normal, integrated part of Egyptian life. And suddenly, with no warning, unlike some of the previous plagues, Yahweh turns the lights out. Instantly, darkness, total darkness covers the whole country. No sun, no light, no reassurance in the morning that everything will be okay. No constant affirmation of the deity and perfection of the Pharaoh as the sun hangs high in the sky. In every previous plague, Yahweh has dismantled an idol of Egypt. Popular philosophy, family, place, safety, sexuality, health, money, order. But now darkness rolls in and the reason that this is uniquely enraging to the Pharaoh is because God has essentially run a 72-hour smear campaign against him by hanging darkness over the land. The Pharaoh was completely impotent for three days. For the very first time in his entire life, there was actually literally nothing he could do but sit and endure it. And maybe you don't know a narcissist, but I've met plenty of them. And the most paralyzing and painful experience a narcissist can have is to truly have no control, is to be able to have absolutely zero influence over a situation that is extremely important and sensitive to them. Nothing causes panic in a narcissist like that. There's no spin the Pharaoh can put on these three days of darkness that makes himself look good on the other side. He can't pivot, he can't manipulate, he can't run interference to try to shift the blame to somebody else. There's no small half-apology he can make at the end of this that retains the respect of his people for him. He has lost the one thing he cannot live without, his following, his standing, his being viewed as the greatest. You see, the Pharaoh was more than a man in Egypt. He was seen as a god, the embodiment of the ideal human being, similar to the Roman gods, the Egyptian pantheon takes one great or good element of human life and concentrates it and distills it and then attributes that to a god. And so if you want to be patient, you go to the god of patience. If you want to be generous, you go to the god of generosity. You want to be rich, you go to the god of wealth. But there in the Pharaoh is supposed to be this culmination of all of the ideals of human life. He is the pinnacle. He is the thing we all want to be if we are really honest with ourselves. To some degree, to use modern examples, the Pharaoh is a mixture of Elon Musk, Cardi B, Kevin Hart, Michael Jordan, Donald Trump, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He is an icon among his people. 
And Yahweh took all of that away in seconds. In verse 24, the Pharaoh who we see is uniquely human. We've never seen him at a low point like this prior to this point in the story. He is clinging to the last shreds of his ego as he makes one last attempt to bargain with Yahweh. He says, everybody can leave, but you just have to leave the animals. And Pharaoh rebuts him for the final time. He says, not a hoof shall be left behind, Pharaoh. No, no, God will not take your deal. God is not trying to bargain with you. God is not relieved that you've finally given him most of what he asked for. This is not a negotiation, Pharaoh. This is our God being sovereign. You can be in favor of that and get out of the way, or you can go against it and stay in the way. But God will move and go where he decides to move and go. The choice is yours. As Pharaoh's world disintegrates around him, his humanity finally shows itself. He no longer can play the game of acting like divinity among his people. He can't hide how small he really is inside. Just like Yahweh promised in Exodus chapter 10 earlier, he has placed his plagues onto Pharaoh's inner man, and that man is more fragile than any of his followers would have guessed. In verse 28, Pharaoh is screaming. He's out of control. His cool, collected facade is finally out of arm's reach. He can no longer compose himself. He is the picture of mental deterioration finally snapping and biting at Moses because he has nothing left to fight off his inner darkness but threats of violence. He has become the most animal version of himself. The composed divine ruler of the earth is gone. From now until God's people finally leave Egypt at the end of Exodus 12, Pharaoh will remain unhinged and shackled to his own humanity. He will drag it around and it will shame him again and again. And he will not learn from it. He will not repent. He will not be changed. He'll just bear it and it will destroy the people who are closest to him. The idol in view today for you and I is the worship of icons, of celebrities, politicians, internet personalities, historical figures, megachurch pastors, spiritual gurus, Silicon Valley CEOs, world-class athletes. I define an icon like this. An icon is the image of a person who has succeeded in a way that you aspire to. An icon is the totally unrealistic distillation of a person down to a handful of their greatest strengths. We worship icons whenever we imagine ourselves living the life of another person. And when we do that, we participate in our own deception because we elevate and platform the achievements of a human being while ignoring the trail of damage and self-destruction behind that momentary greatness. Fifteen years after whatever famous person you love has finally fallen out of favor and somebody makes a Netflix documentary about them, that's when we find out all of the junk that was in their past, all of the people they were willing to destroy or discard in order to achieve this brief momentary fame that they sought so much. Icons are the most dangerous idols we produce because we produce them together. It's corporate idolatry. It's not isolated. We can't do it alone. Our self-deception in this sense has to be corporate to exist because those of us who are indwelt by God's spirit, we can sense that our icons are not really what they seem to be. We actually know that way down deep. We can tell. We can feel it. But we want them to be real so badly that we choose corporately, collectively to put our trust in their achievements. Why? What benefit does it bring to you and I for us to want a person to be who they present themselves as instead of who they really are? Well, we like that because we can tell ourselves that maybe someday we can be like them too. If we can elevate our icon, 
If we can be blind to their shortcomings, then we can lie and tell ourselves that if we just work hard enough and play our cards the right way and hustle, whatever that means, we can do that too someday. And when we worship an icon, really what we're worshiping is a make-believe future version of ourselves. We are turned inward completely, even if we do it in the name of another person. We worship our self-realized future, holding out hope that eventually we too will climb atop a public pedestal and finally receive the attention and the love of others that we have always suspected we really deserved. Icons tell us that we can earn what we don't have. They affirm hard work and sacrifice as the path to a kind of eternal life. To be an icon, to be immortalized in culture, to have a park or a school or a day of the year named after you is to achieve the pinnacle of humanity. It is a form of immortality that we believe we can grasp on this side of heaven. And we, like Pharaoh, have no problem with others looking at us and saying, worship Philip or worship Mike or Sarah or whatever your name is, living forever within your bodies, associate with his or her majesty in your hearts. The prayer of school children in ancient Egypt is the theme song of modern idolatry of icons. Be like them incarnate them. Don't incarnate God. Incarnate their life, their energy, their spirit, their values. And then you'll have what you're looking for. Functionally, an icon does the work of navigating human life for us. Do you have a problem? Have you survived some kind of mistreatment at the hands of another person? Are you struggling to find your place in society or to understand who you are? Well, you're in luck. Western culture offers you a pick of icons who have something to say about whatever you're dealing with. You can find an icon who has publicly navigated their sexuality to great financial success, like Caitlyn Jenner or Demi Lovato. There are icons who have abandoned their faith to much applause, championing progress and the further advancement of humanity, like Kevin Max of DC Talk or Abraham Piper. We have self-made men like Joe Rogan and Warren Buffett, technocrats like Zuckerberg and Musk, political celebrities like Tucker Carlson and Colin Kaepernick, and they are our pharaohs. More than the power they may wield, it is the ideals they represent that draws our obsession, which is the 2021 word for worship. We follow them online, we watch their interviews, and we find ourselves regurgitating their philosophies. They validate us, they empower us, they lead us further into our own self-destruction. And as we look at Exodus 10 and we watch the personal collapse of Pharaoh, we are seeing Yahweh throw a flashbang into our lifestyle of icon worship today. Yahweh's punishment of Pharaoh is harsh. It is bright and loud and hard to misunderstand. And it is meant for your benefit. Because darkness is coming for our icons too. It can only be kept at bay by money and pleasure and power for so long. And church, hear me. I am in no way making light of these men and women, but this is the same darkness that fell onto Chester Bennington of Lincoln Park, Anthony Bourdain, Robin Williams, David Foster Wallace, Kate Spade, and by my estimation, around 290 other international celebrities who have taken their own lives since January 1st of 2000. Icons of creativity. Icons of hard work, icons of success, overtaken by, to quote God's word, a darkness to be felt. So where can we take our souls when they break? 
Who can heal our broken minds? What do we do when we have lived under a cloud so long that it has fundamentally changed us? Can anyone undo that? I'll read to you from the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. These are John's words about the only hope of humanity. In the beginning, before all things, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. He precedes the darkness that inhabits our lives. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And in him, in the Word of God, was life. And the life in him was the light of mankind. The light, not a light, the only one. The light which does shine in the darkness. The darkness that cannot overcome this light. Jesus is the only light that cannot be suffocated by darkness. And Jesus will gladly take your broken soul, your broken mind. He's not embarrassed by your humanity. He has more compassion for your pain and dysphoria than any human icon ever will. The author of Hebrews says this in chapter 2. That Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Brothers meaning you and I, humanity, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, that he might make amends for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are now being tempted. In other words, Jesus became like you, even you who are deeply, regularly, chronically depressed. His spirit and mind and body were subjected to the worst darkness in human experience. The night before his death, Jesus cried out to Yahweh for deliverance from the weight of darkness he would suffer through as he was publicly executed the next day. In the middle of that humiliating death, he communicated to Yahweh that he was experiencing spiritual abandonment by his heavenly father. Jesus was crushed in a way that the Pharaoh of Egypt could only imagine. Jesus has been to the depths of your darkness. He survived it. He's not afraid of it. He doesn't squirm or get uncomfortable when you have heavy, challenging questions for him. He's not worried when your suffering soul begins to splinter and crack under the intense weight of darkness. He's been there. He's there now. He's able to help those who are tempted. He's present in your suffering. He was separated from Yahweh by darkness on the cross so that you never have to be apart from him again. The author of Hebrews says two chapters later in chapter 4 that Jesus has sympathy for us in our weaknesses. Jesus is the only icon who is all that he seems to be. He can give us what we are begging our human icons for. He has answers to our questions. He defines success for us and then he shows us the way to life that is abundant, life that is eternal in nature. Jesus alone can open the door to a way of life that fully fills our inner self. It is this part of us that he has been after since the beginning. And where our elevation and worship of others leads only to death, we should platform Jesus. He's the right icon to hold up. We should lift him up above every other person in human history. God's word says he has a name above every other name. And that is what we want when we seek to follow our icons. So churches, we see the icon of Egypt collapse, turn totally inward on himself, imploding with his own pride, unable to let go of it, just riding that self-destruction out to the bitter end. May we learn a lesson about humanity. 
we do not have within ourselves the ability to meet our eternal needs. We cannot give life to ourselves or each other. And we want so desperately to find someone, though we could look back at thousands of years of human history and see every king and leader and icon and celebrity fall and collapse. We still believe that our icons can do something for us, that they're different, that we finally figured it out, we've progressed far enough that we don't have to worry about those things anymore. As we look back at human history, a history riddled with destruction at the hands of powerful people, there is one man who stands out, and his name is Jesus. One man who gave his life away, one man who brought peace to the earth, who brought not a sword to divide, but peace to unite, to bring us together, to make us well in our minds, in our spirits. May we follow him. May we believe rightly that he represents our future, that he alone shows us what we can become and who we hope to be. Let me pray that for you. Father, your mercy on us is a miracle. It's undeserved. And in my experience, as I read this account of Pharaoh, he feels hyperbolic to me. He doesn't feel real until I get to this moment. And I see that all this posturing, all this time playing political and spiritual games with Yahweh, it was all he knew to do. It was self-preservation in its most basic form. And then, God, I go to lunch with people, and I pray with people, and I'm in life group with people, and I myself am a person, and I go, that's who we all still are. We're all still just sort of a combination, a soup of our best attempts to ward off the things we're afraid of and convince ourselves and other people that we're doing something right. And I pray, God, that as we see the Pharaoh refuse to lay down his own self-righteousness, though it has exploded in his face in a way none of us have ever experienced, Would you give us the mercy and the trust and the strength of spirit to surrender our own self-righteousness, to lay down whatever pursuit of whatever thing it is that we've held up and exemplified and glorified and idolized, that we would see in you the fullness, the pinnacle of humanity, what it can mean to be united with God, embodying him, living your life, God, bringing something into every relationship that we have instead of taking all the time. God, we want to do this collectively. I pray that you would give us courage as we meet in groups this week and we discuss these concepts and we confess our icons, our idols that we love so much. And I pray, God, that the mercy and the presence of Jesus would fill those holes as we confess and repent and make room, God, that you would move in even further in our lives. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.